Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll be there in a few moments this morning. Acts chapter 4. We're going to continue our studies. We had the last couple Sundays. We're just at the end of this great and notable miracle that Peter and John, in the name of the Lord, have performed on the lame man. They've been brought before the council of uh, Sadducees and interrogated. They have been threatened and now let go. And so we have this scene afterwards where they praise the Lord and they pray to Him. And really the Lord sends affirmation that all they had done in witnessing and evangelizing had His approval. And so now we're going to begin our reading in verse number 31. And we'll read through about halfway the chapter, uh, book of, the chapter 5 of the book of Acts. Look at me in verse 31 of chapter 4. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. And neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now, neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the price of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, we'd understand it as encouragement, he was a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And now a contrast. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy or knowledgeable to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? <coughs> Excuse me. And to keep back part of the price of the land. Now, here's, here's the argument. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast, not, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them, and heard these things. And the young men arose, and wound him up, and carried him out, and they buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. And then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which hath buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then she, or then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And, and this would be true of any church, and great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as has heard these things. Our Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments, 
Lord, as we consider this very unique text, Lord, this story of, Lord, how we have seen a positive example of someone honoring you and, Lord, a, a dishonorable example, that, Lord, we would take notice and, and we would understand here, Lord, what you commend and, Lord, what you condemn. And I'll ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you all for standing. God bless you can be seated. <laughs> Our next section of scriptures contains the postscript or the afterword of Peter and John's healing of the lame man in the name of Jesus. And then the ensuing interrogation of the religious establishment. The conclusion of this notable miracle performed on a lame man was that the gospel was preached to a myriad of people. When Peter noticed that a crowd had assembled around this lame man, he used that opportunity and occasion to preach the gospel to this uh, collected crowd of individuals. And the Bible says that many were saved. We no longer have an exact number. It's now way beyond the number of 500. And men and women and children were saved as a result of this notable miracle done by Peter and John in the name of the Lord. The Sadducees had no answer to Peter's bold assertion that Jesus Christ was the source. Of course, they brought him in. They arrested him and asked him, by what authority or by what power do you do these things? And of course, he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God resurrected, you know, we are doing these things. And, and they could not answer. They, they knew that a notable miracle had occurred. They, they could not say otherwise. They were unwilling to relent that it was done in the name of Jesus. So they simply severely threatened these men and told them no more to speak in the name of Christ. And they sent them on their way and turned them loose. The net result of this story, of course, was the expansion of the kingdom of God. Many men, many women and children were saved as a result of this event. The disciples now and an expanded number began to praise and pray God as they gathered together after the release of Peter and John. The spotlight now falls for the second time on the community, the life, the interwovenness of the church in Jerusalem. It would be like the spotlight from heaven and the Word of God now looks upon Eastland Baptist Church, the kind of life that you're living and what is happening in the church as a result of these events. Now, no doubt, underscoring the importance of this church life for a second time, God is highlighting its importance to us. The fledgling church has been obedient to its command and call to take the gospel and to make disciples of every nation, but beginning in Jerusalem. They had been doing that. They are doing that. And the Bible says they would continue to speak boldly in his name. And having done this, in the face of arrest and harassment and great threatenings, their obedience to this great commission, to this mission, uh, was not deterred in the slightest. Rather, their emboldenedness only grew. In fact, in the form, in, in, in opposite to the storm of opposition, the fans had only flamed in a higher degree in their willingness to share the gospel, having prayed and praised God. Now, the text tells us initially that the Lord now, after their arrest, and of course, what he's really commending here is the fact that they had been obedient to his call to share the gospel. The Lord manifested his approval by responding to their petitions and prayer by granting a third visitation of the Holy Spirit. In a, in a manifest way, in a way they all would have known what was occurring. 
In this manifestation, the Holy Spirit emboldened the early church to even be more aggressive and bold in the proclamation of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, the gospel. There's a phrase in the Word of God that basically says, to those that have or had, more is given. And that is a confirmation of what is happening here. These are people who had been bold, and God is granting more boldness. These are people who are doing right, and God's going to give them more opportunity to do that right in sharing their faith. Their faith. This mission-mindedness, however, had another consequential effect on the church. Now, I'm going to say that again. In being obedient to the call of God to advance the gospel, to spread the gospel, they receive God's approval. And God manifests the Holy Spirit a third time in a way that increased their boldness. So that is one effect of them being mission-minded. But it had another consequential effect on the church as well, beyond, beyond just being bold. It drew them together. It made them a closer-knit fellowship. It increased their love towards one another in the church. It knit them together, as the text said, in heart and in mind. Mission-mindedness brought the applause of God, but mission-mindedness also drew them together as a church. Fellowship, for its own sake and benefit, is a worthy pursuit. And there are many reasons that we should try to join together in fellowship. But the point here is that the fellowship and the unity and the spirit of oneness was a byproduct of them serving together for a higher purpose. Now, you understand what I'm trying to say here and distinguish? We can come together as a church and we can say, okay, fellowship is important. And by the way, fellowship is important. The entire reason for that fellowship hall uh, that we exited into after church that was built purposely so that you and I would spend additional time together in an informal way to encourage one another in the faith. And we do that every time we have a service here and it is serving its purpose and it is commendable. And I can try to teach and coach us to, hey, fellowship is important. Stay, come early, stay late, and let's do these things. But what I am suggesting from the Word of God is that a deeper level of fellowship was enjoined into because the people were mission-mindedness. Them joining together in common purpose brought them together in a way that all the coaching in the world cannot do. Now, the Bible calls upon believers to live a life of unity and harmony. I'm going to read a couple of sections of Scripture to you, and I'm going to do this kind of quickly. But one of those Scriptures that calls us to live together in harmony is Philippians chapter 2. And let me just read a few verses from this. And Paul is saying, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded together as a church, having the same love, being of one accord, the two things that God granted this early church, and of one mind. Let nothing, he's speaking to you as an individual, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, yet in lowliness of mind, let each member of the church as the idea, esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things. Don't be primarily concerned what you think about the color of the carpet. 
or how we do a program or something else, but every man also on the things of others. Another text in Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way, um, verse number 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy vocation wherewith you are called, and with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then Romans chapter 15, verse number 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you as an individual member to be like-minded one towards another in the church according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have three different commands, and of course the Word of God will replete with many other, that is looking at you and I and saying, hey, you have something precious in the church, take care of it, protect it, promote its interest, and you can do that by being like-minded. Don't let the other concerns of the world or petty differences interrupt the unity and the spirit that you have in the church. Unity and peace and harmony are described as pursuits worthy of our utmost effort in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And emphasized in our text is that in this church of Jerusalem, they did have that. They had one heart. They had one soul. The words here in the Greek are describing the conditions of the, of the inner man, that they agreed together, they, that they were getting along with each other. And it resulted in a greater affection and harmony towards one another. Now, this approval of God that was demonstrated, which we read in the first verse, by shaking the building that they were on, that they were in, and then giving the Holy Spirit, well, this was an express approval of not just that unity, but what caused the unity. And that was the fact that they were obeying the commission to be mission-minded and to share the gospel with other people. That endeavor made them of one heart and one mind. But this one expressly and unique manifestation of God's approval upon their being mission-minded, this one heart and one soul, was in their radical generosity and sharing. Now, I want us to understand something as we read this text. Um, Brother Daniel, a few months ago, encouraged you all to give the tithe, the 10%, uh, which has been the standard by which, you know, those who've gathered together in assembly have done since the beginning, you know, really a, a time together in the tabernacle, the temple, and now the New Testament church. Yet, we, there's no command here to give beyond that in our text. You know, Peter... And John were standing up saying, okay, now, hey, you all, you go sell your houses and you go sell your lands. Now, Jesus implied that there was some wisdom in laying up treasures in heaven and, and, and being engaged in radical sharing. But these people aren't operating under that compulsion. Yet in the early church, such grace was given that provided enablement to then to give, as was done the Macedonians, to their power, yea, and beyond their power. What was happening here is that those in the early church who had a surplus, more than they obviously needed, it said houses and lands plurality, decided for the benefit of the church and to meet the needs of individual members that they would sell them. Now these were enormous assets, things that men would have coveted after, but they decided to sell homes and land to meet the burgeoning needs of this new body of believers. And so God had given grace for boldness, 
God had given grace for fellowship. God had given grace for witnessing. And now he's given an incredible grace for sharing. Now, the early church was no doubt made up principally of poor people. Now, if we think about the context, okay, so the Holy Spirit came down the day of Pentecost. This is the day where Jews would have traveled from all over the known world. Pilgrims would have been filled in Jerusalem. And they had probably come and left houses and lands. And they had left where they had come from. They were no longer employed. And they hear the gospel and many are saved. Now, many decide to stay. They want to be a part of this early church. And they're, they're leaving things behind, probably gathering family. But this is all they have. The majority of Jews were already poor. But these were people now who were being displaced, who their own free will were staying. They had no place to stay. They, they only had limited provision for the journey they thought they were taking. It would be for a couple of weeks. But now they're deciding to stay and live in Jerusalem. And economic hardship had already fallen on Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul would identify later. And really he would ask for an offering from all the churches to meet the famine that would eventually come. But this church, along with its great membership of poor people, also had people from the middle and upper classes as well. And the attitude that they all shared was this. Whatever God has given me, I, I am a steward, and I'm going to use that for the care of God's church and the care of God's people. Now, obviously, the poor people could do less than maybe the middle class or rich in terms of, uh, of numbers. But we know from the book of Corinthians that they were trying to do this equitably. Everyone was trying to do the same as they had power to do. But in these days, people needed food. They needed shelter. And other individual members were feeding people who had come and joined the church and were part, who had no place to stay. They were providing lodging. Now, in these days, you have to remember, there was no welfare system. There was no government subsidies. There was no social security. There was no system of safety net to protect the vulnerable of society. When people were helped, it was out of the goodness and grace of someone else's heart that provided this. As an ethic, I believe most everyone worked. Some may not be found in the same ethic in our world today. And so what these people had was just a lack of opportunity. And now many were being ostracized by family because of their decisions to follow Christ. And they were genuinely poor. That's often hard to discern today. But these people were genuinely poor in need of food and shelter. And these needs were generously met by other members in the church. And the disposition among all members was this. Is that every member was simply stewarding what they had for the sake of Christ. The purpose they, they were part of was bigger than any individual asset or priority. In other words, my accumulation of wealth is secondary to making sure you have food. Okay? If I climb the corporate ladder and I have more, then I'm going to see that as an opportunity to maybe to sell part of my assets that I've accumulated, and now I'm going to dis distribute this. Now, this is not something they all did wholesale. They weren't all selling their homes and houses, but the Lord laid a burden on many of these people to do this, and this was an ongoing process as needs presented themselves. Some people sold land. As there were other needs, other people sold houses. And people in the church were being moved by the Holy Spirit to make these sacrifices for the benefit of the church. The purpose was bigger than individual wants and needs. Okay, I, I'm, I'm pulling all this together to make a point in a few moments. These dynamics are something that I think most of us can relate to if we think about it. There's probably been a time in our lives where we have sacrificed time, 
comfort resources, uh, put aside our pettiness and opinions for the sake of something greater. Okay? Now, let, let's, let's just go small. There have been times when a group of men and women have pulled together, maybe selling or giving everything they had to start a business or a company. Okay? I, I don't know that would be true of anyone here. But there'd be people who's, who had an idea. Hey, we're going to start this business, this company. And you can read these stories all the time about people who do this. And these group of people came together and they talked about this business. And we're going to pull together and we're going to, hey, we're going to sell some houses and cars, what we have. We're going to put it all here to build some capital. And we're going to grow this business. And for a time, the purpose was greater than individual preference or want or need. Does that make sense? Everybody can relate to the story I'm telling? Okay, maybe if not that one, we do another one. Maybe for a time when you were much younger, you can remember back to maybe your high school days or college days when you were part of an athletic team. And the purpose of the team was to come together in unity and fellowship and, and to discipline ourselves to execute things in a certain way so we could obtain a victory or maybe a conference title or a championship. And during that time, you sacrificed your time. You sacrificed your opinions. If the coach said play left guard instead of quarterback, you know, the goodness of all here said we'll play that position for the team. We'll do what's required. We yielded for a greater purpose for a while for the sake of something bigger than ourselves. Okay, can some of you relate to that? Okay, three of you. That's awesome. <laughs> History is replete with stories where nations were galvanized together in common purpose Politics set aside, resources were given and sacrificed in a time of conflict and war. Now, most of us have not known that time as maybe would have happened in World War I or World War II, but this is where people gave all they had for the cause. And husbands and sons were sacrificed, all for the sake of victory. The goal, the purpose, the mission brought them together and created a unification, a galvanization, a fellowship that they would not have known, a fellowship that was so deep and great that they would have never known minus the people giving themselves together for a common purpose and cause. Okay? Do I have most of us now? In our story, the purpose and the cause was God's purpose. It was to be a witness. It was the expansion of the kingdom of God. It was to evangelize a world for Christ. And they were working together in unity to obey this scriptural command. Uh, the, purpose, the purpose then, which was worked out in their heart, affected their hearts and minds. And the product of this pursuit was a fellowship, a joy, a unity of mind and heart that could not be found or coached in any other way. And by radical sharing, Barnabas here uh, provides a positive example of someone who was sold out for the cause, who was part of this mission-mindedness. Barnabas, Barnabas here in a radical, he was a Levite, that means he was a man of a little bit more means. The Levites, once upon a time, couldn't own land. The New Testament, that evidently wasn't true. He had land by some means. His name was, we know to me, encourager. He was a good man. He became a companion of the Apostle Paul. Um, he was the guy who actually introduced Paul uh, to a reluctant early church. 
He believed in grace and second chances as evidenced in his cousin's life, John Mark, who failed once, but Barnabas said, get up and do it again. And here this man is presented as a man of means, a Levite from Cyprus. That means he had wealth, he had land, and he sold it for the sake of his brothers. He loved the church and its members more than he loved land. And he took the full price of it and he laid it at the disciples' feet for distribution among the needy in the church. For that act of love and grace, he is remembered by us and the Word of God forever. You know, the church will thrive if it is filled with men like Barnabas who think about the group more than themselves. Let's just boil it down to the principle, okay? I'm not going to make it about money. A man who thinks about others more than he thinks about his own individual's needs. But sadly, and conversely, not every church is filled with members just like Barnabas. Others such as Ananias and Sapphira may attend, who sought attention, acclamation, and man's approval his reward, man's reward, more than God's approval and God's reward. This husband and wife were seeking, now I want you to understand the story. Barnabas is being applauded, not so much by men, but by God. But they see it. So Ananias and Sapphira, it's evident here, they don't share so much the heart of Barnabas, they just want the attention and applause that Barnabas has received. This is their sin. So they go out and they sell a piece of land. Okay, that's commendable. And let's say they sold the land for $100,000. Okay? okay? No sin's been committed yet. Why was in their power before they sold it, after they sold it, if they would have come to Peter and said, Peter, we sold our land for $100,000. Now we're keeping $20,000 for ourselves. Peter may have gone, eh? But there would have been no sin. But that's not what they did. They sold the land, these are, I'm making up numbers, $100,000. Um, and they, they, call, they came and told Peter, we sold the land for $80,000. You with me? They lied about the difference. And they kept the difference for themselves, which would have been no evil, look up here, if they hadn't lied about it. It was fraud. You see, I think that's just a big deal. Well, that's where you and God maybe thinks differently. Because they lied to Peter, they lied before the church, and they lied before the Holy Spirit. And God saw this as an incredible threat. So they sold a piece of land, and they didn't tell the truth about it, because what they were seeking was the applause of men and some cash in our pockets. Unlike Barnabas, they lied about the worth of the land. They pretended to give all, but in truth they kept some for themselves, which wouldn't have been no evil if they had not been dishonest about it. In this act of fraud, they were playing the part of an evil, pretending good and virtue that they did not truly possess. Now that spirit of wanting for self more than wanting for the group, is what is at issue in the text. 
that cared more about themselves and their approval. Hey, you all see the ministry I'm involved in? Do you see how I'm serving over here? You guys following me? I'm doing something good, but I'm not doing it for the right reason. I sold some land, but I want you to see me do it. And I want you to think that I sacrificed all for this group, but really, I just want your approval and applause. Can you all just clap for me? Is what these people are about. God saw that kind of heart as a threat to the fellowship and unity of the church, to its mission-mindedness, to the cause and the spirit. So in forfeiting honesty and integrity and the good of others for their own agenda and their own applause, they forfeited their life. You go, whoa, that's serious. And I would say, whoa, that is serious. I would agree. I want you to consider this. I'm working to principles. No business or team or military or church can succeed when individual purposes supersede the purpose of the team. When it supersedes the cause. I've been learning about the Roman Empire. I was talking to staff about this this morning, and Rome didn't always have Caesars. They had consuls before they had Julius Caesar, which was the first quote-unquote Caesar. But there's this thing you, you see when you study ancient Rome and all these ancient cultures, is that every time the leader or a person on the team was um, more about themselves, about greed or gaining versus giving, whenever a consul, an emperor, a senator acted in self-interest, it hurt Rome, it hurt the people, it hurt the cause, and ultimately it hurt themselves. There's a thought I want you to think about with me. The first one is this, is common purpose is a powerful force. You and me, look up here, you and me sharing the same purpose. You and me sharing the same cause. You and me deciding we're on this team and that this team and what we're a part of is bigger than my individual world, my individual wants, and my individual needs. Now I understand in Western culture and autonomy, this grates us. Because it's all about us. And I'm not being unkind. I'm just telling you, that's the philosophy of the age. You have been taught that. Have it your way your entire life. No commercial taught you to be deferential. No TV show taught you to be humble. Everybody told you to get what belongs to you. The Machiavellian way is all we know as a culture. Yielding ourselves for a common purpose, it's only found a few times in life on a sports team, in a military campaign, maybe for a business, and I, I, I hope in a church. Amen. What is clear in this text is that God's express approval and commendation was for the church's commitment, despite opposition, to the task given them, and that was to take the gospel to every nation starting in Jerusalem. And they were doing that, and they were rewarded by God with a greater grace, a greater boldness, a greater opportunity to share that faith. And the net result of that was a church living in unity and peace. All of us here today should be committed to acting selflessly, being good, doing good, 
showing humility, acting in deference, setting aside our agendas for the greater agenda of the purpose of serving God together here at Eastland Baptist Church. But here's the point. All this can be most effectively done and in the greatest solidarity and in mass when you and I simply give ourselves individually to the purposes of God. See, I, I can come to you and say, hey, please don't do that. And I can come and say, hey, that's not how Christians act. Hey, that's, that's hurting the team. Hey, by the way, would you look at me in Philippians and Ephesians and, and Romans? And the Bible says have unity. Now, I can try and I can try. And, there's, and there is some effectiveness in that. You, are you with me? Okay, I, I, can, I can do some maintenance there. But if I say to you, hey, guys, come on, team. Hey, let's go out there and let's win someone to Christ. Hey, let's all be a part of what God is doing here at Eastland Baptist Church. And I need you to show up for outreach. And I want you to be here on Sundays. And we're going to come together Sunday night. And we're going to care about people. And we're going to love this city. And we're going to do good. And we're going to live for God. If we'll respond to that, that will do more for the fellowship and protection and unity of Eastland Baptist Church than any coaching I can do. Because you're on the team, man. We're together. We have solidarity of purpose and in unity in what we're trying to do. That's why the Bible tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Make that the priority. Make that the purpose. And then, hey, I'll give you all that you need. And then all those people who do that together will be drawn together in an incredible fellowship and unity that they cannot ex experience if we're not on the same page. Well, I want to decide what page we're on. Right? Okay. I, uh, let's do this. Let's just get on this page. And, you know, and I, I, I may not hit the mark exactly like, like you want to, but we got to try. That's what a church is about. Let's get on the same page. Let's do the same things. What's the priority here? Not ourselves. It's winning East Tulsa and Tulsa in this world to Christ. We're going to give our efforts and our time and our resources for that. If you're here for some other purpose, I, I probably can't help you. When we give ourselves a common purpose, there will be power. We will give ourselves to prayer. There will be unity, vitality in life. I can try to manufacture those things, but we have the same, same cause. Unity, harmony, and peace are best realized as byproducts of a people fully committed together to the purposes of God. So when Brother Daniel or Brother John gets up here and says, hey, we have outreach Saturday. Hey, we have tracks back here that need to be distributed. We're doing more than trying to get you to do a good thing. We're trying to protect the spirit of Eastland Baptist Church. Have you ever been to a meeting when everyone was there? Like, wow, this is awesome. This is electric. This is great. We're all here together. We're all doing the same thing. You know, it's, it's why most of us love, I love my church so much. We all come together. We'll have this cause. We'll do this one thing on that one day. And it creates a spirit of unity that we cannot have, minus that purpose and unity that night. Are you guys with me? Okay, I feel like I'm spitting the wind a little bit here. It's not that heady. I, as a leader, could try to police a problem, bad attitudes, and conflict, but I would rather rally you to the cause of Christ. 
to encourage you to share the gospel, to pass out a tract, to invite someone to church, to generously and radically give of yourself and your time and your resources for this place and the purposes of God. And if that would happen, pettiness and division would be drowned away in a sea of common purpose. That's the way you keep the spirit of a church right, is keeping them on task, doing the right things. And then I'll finish with this. I'm going to borrow some minutes, which I always do. Pursuing the common good <clears throat> and exclusion to pursuing your own good will elevate you. It will elevate your character. Okay. I, I, I hate to say this, but it's in the Word of God. It will elevate your acclaim, your applause. I thought you got that by, you know, doing it yourself, rising to the top, making yourself first. Oh, you'll get something, but, but you'll, you'll lose more than you gain. Pursuing the common good will get you more than pursuing things for yourself. But conversely, this is true. But a failure here and living for self has the power to diminish you, to steal from you, to take from your character, your hope, and your prospect for ever becoming a better person. When you and I look up and see a field white for harvest and do something about it, when we give ourselves to others' benefit and good, when we lay down our lives for others, when we demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice, we're going to find ourselves lifted up. Recognized. Now, I'm going to be careful there, but you get the idea. You're going to get the applause of God and then His power to give back to you. You're going to find yourselves lifted up and honored, appreciated, loved. You're going to grow in character. You're going to find real joy. But whenever we focus on the man in the mirror, making self the goal, the object of our own resources and reinvestment and reinvestment, your character will inevitably be diminished and in time, perhaps your resources as well. Certainly your long-term good. A parallel text here is found in Joshua's time with a man named Achan. He went to battle. He sort of played a part. But he could not resist the temptation to get what he wanted, when he wanted, to enrich himself just a little bit. God... <clears throat> saw this man as deficient, and he began to lose. And he lost his character, he lost his trustworthiness, he lost his family, and he lost his life by seeking self first. And so too will every person who does not put others and God first. Moses, Jeremiah, Paul, and time Peter all lived for others. And now 2,000, 4,000 years later, they are remembered and revered for what they gave, how they helped, how they loved, how they put other people before themselves. This is a universal, irrevocable truth and principle presented to us in the Word of God. Jesus presented to His followers this truth. He was teaching a parable. He was saying, for those who have ears to hear, you need to listen to what I'm about to say. And I want to go back to a verse I quoted earlier. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. 
and he shall have abundance. Stop. For whosoever hath character and exercise it, he'll grow in character. Whoever hath generosity, then he will prove that generosity, and then he will be given the means to be more generous. Every man who is good and acts on that goodness will be given more goodness. But every man that hath not goodness, you got a little bit, but you don't exercise it. Even what he hath shall be, what's the next words? Taken away. Achan had something once upon a time, and he lost, and he lost, and he lost, and he lost it all. Barnabas had some, and he acted upon the goodness that he had, and God gave more, and gave more, and now his life and his name is recorded in the Word of God forever. You act for yourself and selfish. You come into a church, you cause problems. You start worrying about your little world. You're going to hurt all of us, and you're going to hurt yourself. But you come in here and you try to be a member and you get on board and you do what we're doing and you get on the cause and you stop worrying about all your stuff and you go grab a track and you pass it out. You show up to outreach. You come to church. You're going to find yourself about involved in something that's really special. And this is going to be a great place and a happy place. And you're going to increase our joy and your own. And maybe in time we can resemble the church of Jerusalem who had one spirit and one heart, one mind, because they were joined together in a similar cause, and that cause was the cause of Christ. That trumps everything. So many of us get what we want, and then we lose what we had. Because what we wanted was the wrong thing. Now today, I'm not encouraging anyone here to sell a house or lands to feed the poor among us. Because I'm not sure that's exactly the way things are today. But there's still poverty in the world. And there's still needs. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll see it. And I would encourage you, you should do what God leads you to do. If that even means diminishing yourself in your resource for a moment, well, you just might find yourself happier and more joyful and part of something far more special if you can give to something bigger than yourself. This is the way as an individual, and I'm telling you as a pastor, this is the best way for Eastland Baptist Church to go forward is that it's not about you. It's about us. In a world of church shoppers looking for what we can give, that's not what we're about here. It's about what you can give and how you can help. And can you get on board? You see, it's not the water of the world that sinks the ship. It's the bad water that gets inside. And we can't be that. We have to give ourselves to something more. And I'm imploring you for the future of Eastland Baptist Church, give yourself first, principally, primarily, with all your heart, mind, and soul to God and His purposes, and we'll be all the church we're ever supposed to be. Let me ask you to stand.